What image do you see at the phrase hunting preparation? Do you see getting the cooler filled and a few extra bags of chips? Well, for some that might be right, but for others, hunting prep starts with choosing the proper arms and ammunition, getting an overnight bag just in case, and scouting the woods now to learn where your prey is likely to be come fall. Getting prepared is getting ready for the hunt and preparing for those unexpected issues and being able to respond to protect yourself. Oh, and to have a successful hunt. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 94. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Dan Reed here, the Colonial Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Blaze a trail over to my podcast's page, colonialedlibertarian.com slash podcasts, to find all the previous shows, show notes pages. On the podcast's page, you'll also find the social media icons where you can follow the Colonial Libertarian. Click the support hyperlink, and that support page shows you the various podcatchers hosting the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, as well as a few ways you can support the show. Join the Liberty Classroom or McClanahan Academy programs for on-the-go content for history, as well as a wide selection of courses at Liberty Classroom covering politics, economics, and Western civilization. Practice your pastry skills with Kiko's Cakes Tutorials in Pastry. Kiko is a good teacher, and his lessons are right. Make some yummy desserts for those warm nights following Kiko's video tutorials. He shows you every step of the way so you can make tarts and torts in your own kitchen successfully and fabulously. Grab a coffee mug from my mug store, Cranky Without Coffee, and Etsy store, to help with those fabulous desserts. You can also support the show with a few clicks of the mouse and leave a rating and review of the show on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating and review helps those platforms know to show the podcast to more people, and that grows the audience. Suzanne Sherman is back. Previously, we spoke about prepping, and before that, we spoke about canning. It was during the canning episode, episode 69, we discussed hunting. Well, Suzanne is here today to get into the weeds, or into the woods, about hunting. As you'll hear, Suzanne is well experienced with hunting. She's got lots of information to share, especially for the young and experienced or just starting out hunters. Suzanne, welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast. I am so happy to be back. Thank you again for having me. My pleasure. Before we get rolling here, provide us uh, some basis, some bit of uh, your hunting experience and acquired knowledge as we roll into getting ready for the hunt. I never hunted before until I moved to Utah over seven years ago, and I learned from just getting out there, having some good teachers, learning about the wildlife. And, um, you know, there's just so much to it from preparing the food, from preparing for the hunt, 
all the things we're going to talk about today, everything we discuss, I have done. Cool. All right, so let's get this first part out of the way first. There is a segment of the population, probably not hunters, who are convinced hunting is unethical. It is not too difficult an opinion to form, but what's missing from their calculation? What's missing, I think, from their calculation is the understanding that hunters are the greatest conservationists out there. We fund, I believe it's from the Robertson Pittman Act of 1937, um, we fund conservation far more than they ever do. A percentage of ammunition sales, rifle, you know, firearm sales, even archery, tags all go directly to confirma- uh, into conservation uh, and the preservation of the wildlife and their habitats. So we really are the greatest conservation group out there. Now, so there's, there's the fiat side of conservation. Is it not also the case that hunters are managing the populations of animals? Because now I don't know about this, but I would imagine that a, a population of animals getting to be too big threatens everybody's well-being because there's X amount of food and we have X plus 20 of these animals. Yes, and this particularly comes to the forefront, for instance, when people talk about big game hunting in Africa, which is beyond the scope of this. But people have to understand is even out here in the wilderness, wildlife and hunting is all regulated heavily in every state by biologists who take careful count and study of the wildlife population, the predation uh, hits they've taken, how they've done over the winter, and then uh, the success of hunters the previous season, and then forecast and allocate tags or permission to hunt these animals in the coming year. So what people don't understand, we're just out, not out there willy-nilly slaughtering animals as we see fit and for the fun of it. It is a very serious business. It's heavily regulated, and there is just a bias towards it because a lot of the people out there won't see with the censorship on, on social media I started getting many bans once somebody that was an anti-hunter saw my hunting pictures and they just genuinely think that it's unnecessary given the fact that you can go and buy meat in the grocery store. You had mentioned ethics earlier. To me, personally, it is more ethical to take an animal that has never been subjected to factory farming, that has never been put in a chute and been poked and prodded and and violated in all sorts of ways, and standing in in you know up to its hawk and its own hawks and its own fecal matter, which I used to see in the California feedlots all the time. So when I take an animal, it's had an amazing life, and one day it's just lights out. And <laughs> hunters also, you know, an ethical hunter will practice, and they will make sure that they are capable of making a quick and humane kill. Their ammunition will match the size of the animal, the distance you're shooting. So nobody wants to injure something and have it suffer. No, that's, that's a whole, well, at the top of the problems that that brings, that's another set of problems right. that have nothing to do with the dispatch of the animal. All right. It is probably challenging, probably challenging to say that this or that idea or this or that item is first since Many things are important and need to be done, including purchasing the weapon and the right weapon and ammunition 
obtaining the license, obtaining the gear, acquiring the knowledge of what it is you're going to hunt and where it's going to be. So let's start with the state. Obviously, there are 50 possibilities, but what should the hunter do to know what to do in his or her state? Well, the first thing I have to do is understand what the laws are with regards to hunting in their area. Some states will require uh, beyond if you're a certain age that you have to take a hunter safety education course. I would recommend that regardless and know they will teach you uh, all the laws within your state and you have to become familiar with the regulations where you can hunt because you can't just buy a rifle, get a tag and hunt anywhere. Many will assign you certain areas. You have to understand when the seasons are because they will allocate certain seasons depending on your method of hunting. So if you're shooting with a rifle, that's going to be different than when you have archery season for obvious reasons. Primitive um, primitive weapons, you know, like for muzzle loaders or archery, again, they separate those out. So you also have to understand the game and know your target. Don't shoot a bull cow or a bull elk if you're shooting for an antlerless elk. You know, things like that. You have to know your target. You have to become familiar with your game. Okay. So part of bagging your prize is not only knowing what it is, but knowing where it's going to be. Let's talk a little bit about how you know where this animal will be and why doing that is so important. And then let's kind of just mesh it together with what weapon do you need for what you're doing? And... And that can be a whole other show, but just like, so what are some of the basics between picking your weapon, picking your ammunition, and you're going after this animal? Let's say you're going after elk. Well, if you're going to go after an elk, first of all, for large game, for instance, you're not allowed to uh, use rim fire. So anything smaller, like a 22, these are all center fire uh, rounds, and they're a larger caliber. So you don't want to say take a, a 22 250 and go for an elk. Now, some people might even say, hey, you can certainly down an elk with the 22-250 if you get the shot placement correct. Be that as it may, elk are very flighty. They're often long distance shots when you're going to shoot one. I've shot them as far as 500 yards before. So you better have ammo that's going to knock them down. 30-06, I've hunted them with their 30-06 and also a seven millimeter Magnum very large caliber for um, smaller animals, for instance. And again, shot placements. There's no hard and fast rule. Shot placement, distance, and the caliber. I've, I've shot mule deer at almost 500 yards as well with a 6.5 Creedmoor, all ethical shots. Um, but again, taking into consideration the size of the round, the size of the animal. So you want to have something that's going to knock them down. Unfortunately, sometimes with an animal as large as an elk or a moose, they might have to be hit twice. Uh, moose, for instance, you might want to go as, as you know, with a, a 300 wind mag. You see that as well. So, you know, just again, the bigger the game, you want to have a good round. You want to be skilled in your shots. Interestingly, the first thing I knew when I, what I realized when I downed my first elk was, wow, this is all basic shooting. So when you're going in there and you take your first firearms class, what they teach you, the muzzle control, the trigger control, follow through, everything they teach you in basic hunting applies to hunt or basic shooting applies to hunting as well. And that was one thing I realized I did everything I did when I was a beginner 
And as long as you stick to that, the basic firearm safety and firearm control, you should be successful if you can, again, stay calm. There's an old joke that hunters spend the day in the blinds drinking beer and shooting the bird at each other. In those camps, I think the whole world is probably safe. But for the determined serious hunter, there is a degree of physical activity that may not be immediately apparent. How should someone interested in hunting a large, well, a large animal, a deer or an elk, prepare for this? And for the turkey or duck hunters, is that any easier with all that walking? Well, you know, honestly, I, well, you were talking about scouting and how much you have to know about their animal movements. You can get away with being in horrific condition. I have a friend that has a heart condition that comes out and hunts with us. And you can also be completely unfamiliar with their patterns if you have a guide. So there are plenty of outfitters that will take you and literally drive you to where you have to shoot, literally drive you to where the game is, and they will do all the work for you. That being said, I am a very avid proponent of being in as best physical condition as you could possibly be, whether or not you hunt. But if you're going to go out there in the wilderness, I also advocate being, again, in really good physical activity. Also, we're going to get into this as well. How do you prepare, how do you prepare equipment-wise and not just with a firearm, but also know that you're going to be healthy enough to make it for a night if you're out there in significantly um, bad weather conditions. We've had people, we were out elk hunting in um, central Utah in a place called Price, and one of the, the vehicles was stuck out at night because some trees had fallen down in high wind and the road home was blocked. And one of the gentlemen out there with the guide was over 70 years old. And guess what? They did not have equipment to stay out overnight. They had to go and be retrieved. So think about being in the best shape you can be in. And if there's anything that's keeping you from being fit enough uh, to hike your way out of a place, make sure that you have gear and people know where you are. Everybody knew where the other members of the party were. So when these people didn't come back by about 10 o'clock at night, they knew exactly where to find them. Oh, no, that's a good plan. Well, so in a little bit in line with that, let's talk about safety gear and electronic equipment. Now, I, you have already mentioned that you hunt. And in Utah, maybe someone doesn't know that that's high elevations compared to, say, you know, Kentucky. Um would hunters in Michigan or Texas need to consider these kinds of physically fit things because it's not as rugged? Or are we thinking that, well, you tell me, I'm not going to answer for it. Well, even if you're in a, an area with lower elevation, again, they can be very cold. They can be very hot. You can plan on any kind of extreme. So be familiar with the terrain in which you're going to be hunting as well as the weather patterns. So for instance, somebody hunting you know, out in Texas in the, in the early fall is going to have significantly different preparedness and preparations for somebody, for instance, hunting antlerless elk out here at 10,000 feet in Utah in January, where we literally hunted in below zero weather. So you have to consider what you're going to be using. And again, we've had people that have had heart conditions that have come out and hunted with us, and some of them even bring oxygen so, uh, you know, not my deal, but if they want to do it, and you can actually buy oxygen canisters in Walmart out here for the people that do come out from the other elevations, whether they're hunting or just engaging in other physical activity or just acclimating to this, cli uh, this climate. Suzanne, before we get into the next question, let's take a moment out 
to hear about another Liberty podcast. Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a Liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Ten, ten thousand feet is pretty high, so I, yep. I don't begrudge somebody. It, <laughs> I'm I'm at five, and it, no kidding, it took me a year being here to actually be able to catch my breath, to actually breathe a full lungs worth of breath and feel satisfied that I had gotten what I wanted because I'm used to being much lower and it's easy to get your, in Florida, you're at like two feet above sea level, it's easy to get a good breath of O2 down there, but it was hard up here. Yeah, when I moved here, we're at about 6,200 feet where my home is. And I, I agree, it took almost a year where I wasn't taking those big, you know, those slow, deep breaths that it would take to feel like you're fully oxygenated. And uh, the, the fun side is when I'd go to California and visit family and I'd go for a little jog, I was surprised I could just keep going and going forever. Yeah. But people do. So you, it's really important to take into consideration things like that, then the altitude and Again, if you're doing this on your own, this is something you need to know. But a lot of people, especially on these high-end hunts where it's really expensive, uh, they just get the outfitters and the outfitters will tell them everything they need to know. But again, even my friend that came out one time on a moose hunt and I helped guide that hunt, was um, he was really struggling. And it turned out later he was diagnosed with AFib. So we were lucky that we didn't have a significant issue out there. and He's not able to come out and hunt this year. Dang. Well, yes, luck is luck is there. Yep. All right. So we, we we want probably if you're going guideless, some degree of physically fit and safety gear. Uh, our hunter needs arms and ammunition. That's obvious. Let's talk a little bit about what kind of electronic equipment we need for some safety in case something happens. And what else would we need to bring with us to either keep ourselves safe because we have to stay overnight or to make sure the hunt is successful? Well, let's talk a little bit about technology and safety gear. First of all, with many of the places I go, there is absolutely no cell service whatsoever. I would recommend a satellite phone, an outfitter that I go out with, my friend that I help guide. Uh, He has a sat phone. I believe Garmin has an option for a sat phone and uh, for also uh, geo uh, devices where you can uh, learn the, uh, you know, the maps where you are. And um, also your smartphone. If you have a smartphone, I actually wrote an article for Survival Dispatch on how you could use your smartphone in a survival situation. There are apps on there that will show you hunting boundaries where property boundaries are and also um, the elevation changes in, in the land. So they'll have the, the geo, uh, what are those called? Those topographical maps. So you can see how you're going to be climbing and where those are. And you can get free downloadable apps for that on your smartphone. So that's another way to do it. And also if your battery dies, you know, have a backup, have some sort of a solar, uh, rechargeable, uh, option for your phone. And, you know, you also use your smartphone if you have to take any pictures of where you've been if you get lost. So have a contingency plan if you get lost, which is very much of a possibility out in some of these wilderness areas. 
Uh, just to clarify, in case someone doesn't know, what is a sat phone? Satellite phone. So rather than relying on um, your your ISP or your service provider like Verizon or T-Mobile, whatever you happen to be using, this will be a certain product that will connect to a, a, a satellite that is connected with that device. They're expensive, but it can be a, it can be a lifesaver. Well, then it's probably worth it if that's going to be a thing you need to have. All right. So I'm thinking if we're going in, we're going to go after anything at all. There is the dressing part. I would imagine we don't want to leave entrails in the woods for wolves or other things to find because that's, I mean, Probably there's some sort of recycling there. I think we're also inviting some trouble. So do we need to have bags? Do we need to have some way to... You're not carrying an elk off the mountain. That's not happening by yourself. So how are we doing this? What's happening here? Well, if we're going to talk about getting the animal out of there, it depends. I mean, everybody will field dress it immediately. Field dressing is where you take the vital organs, all the intestines, the, the rectum, the anus, out of the animal to prevent the meat from being contaminated. You want to do that in a manner where, for instance, if you can avoid puncturing the bladder and getting the urine on the meat, uh, that's optimal. But the first thing you want to think about is cooling that meat down, getting that temperature down as fast as you can. So the first thing you want to do is do that, cut the throat, get the, get the blood out of the animal, all this will affect, uh, on a positive manner, the taste of the animal. If you do it incorrectly, some people will find that really gamey taste, and they don't like that. Um, I suggest uh, bags. I have friends that love the livers and the hearts, so I take those home to them. Sometimes I'll throw some lungs in a bag for my chickens. They seem to really enjoy those. And um, the the windpipe, great for dogs. Dogs love to chew on that. It's really good, uh, good for them, glucosamine, chondroitin, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, as far as the gut pile is concerned, that's just the gift for the magpies and the coyotes and anything else there that wants to eat it. Nobody's really expected unless you have a deal with a private landowner that wants you to haul every single thing out. Uh, we typically leave the gut pile where it is. And, you know, in some places where they have bears, like, for instance, uh, Alaska, these bears actually learn to go where they hear a gunshot. They know there's going to be food there. So some places... You have to get your animal out there quickly. Now, we've always been able to pack out our animals and put them in a side-by-side -side right away and haul them out. If you can't do that, we have game bags. You can buy them at any hunting outlet or Walmart, and you just put them in there, and that keeps the flies off of the meat, and it will keep the meat clean as well. So you can either pack it out um, in, in quarters and do it that way and put maybe the back straps and the loins in bags, and then take it or just take it all out in one shot. And then what we do is we take it over to the processing area at the lodge and then use hydraulics, lift it up, and then put it in a cooler until, uh, until we either quarter it up and process it. But that's, that's, that's where we'll skin it out and start it from there. And I also encourage people to use every bit that they can of these animals. There's so much in, and learn how to tan hides. That's something I'd like to learn how to do. But I also make stock, and we'll get into the processing it out. But dressing it out is really important. Again, if you know that you've had a gut shot and there might be some lead in there, try to recover that bullet if at all possible so another animal doesn't 
doesn't eat that if you are hunting with uh, lead ammunition. And getting back a little bit to the safety gear, you know, we were talking about being prepared to spend a night out there. I have a pack that I go out with where I've actually been told we don't have room for that in the in the buggy. I said, well, then I'm not going because I don't go where my gear doesn't go. And have a pack with a means to stay warm at night. Um, something else to think about, a sidearm. You might have to defend yourself from another animal. Know the laws in your state because if you're hunting archery or muzzleloader, for instance, some states will prohibit you from carrying a sidearm. And that could be important, you know, if you're hunting hogs, for instance, uh, using using archery, if you're crazy enough to want to do that, you might... Why would you do that? Uh, right? Um, you know, so, but I've seen people go hunting them with primitive weapons. And, you know, it's it's just something you want to consider having the ability to defend yourself if you need a sidearm to do that. And that's one of the reasons I, I don't like archery where they will not allow you to do that. If you're hunting muzzleloader, you have to know the laws as well. Some states will not allow you to use optics. Uh, Utah, for instance, just started allowing people to use a three by nine scope, but I believe that's the highest um, the highest magnification, which is fine because anything bigger, you, you can't shoot a, a muzzleloader that far out and be accurate anyway. So uh, think about the safety equipment, notification, the signaling. I had given a friend of mine, my outfitter friend, these little, they look like little hockey pucks and they have signaling. They're like little electronic signaling uh, devices like road flares, but they're battery operated also with LED lights. So you can use them as flashlights. Uh, they, they circle around with the lights or they'll blink, whatever. You can set them in any way. Sets of three where they do three bursts of light for, uh, for instance, universal signal for um, being that you're in trouble. So know those signals, how you can get help. And the person I gave this to, they were hunting and one of the snowmobilers went off the trail and it was dark and they took hours trying to find this guy. So, well, did you give him one of those beacons I gave you? No, that would have made things a lot easier for everybody. Same thing about being prepared to spend the night. We get a lot of, this is a rich man's game out here in Utah. And they took some guys out in their seventies and the, the, um, the, the machine broke down. Again, we call them the, the side-by-sides. This was holding, this one could, I think, hold six people. And they were on tracks. Well, that's great for getting out there in the snow. Not so great if they broke down. My friend had to hike out. Took him four hours hiking through the deep snow to get to a road and get somebody to come up there. So imagine somebody in their 70s sitting in one of these vehicles. And I said, well, did they have their survival gear? Nope. <laughs> So, yeah, it can either be uh, an experience where you might be impatient because you're not going where you want to go, or it could actually be a perilous situation. One pack and the proper gear could make the difference. Have a means to start a fire. Have a means to stay warm. Have a means to make an extra shelter. Know how to make an extra shelter. I'm a tarpaholic. I won't go anywhere without a tarp. There are so many things you can do to make one. Know some basic knots so you can put a ridge line up between trees, swing a tarp over it, learn some basic shelter building. Great stuff that can make a, you know, a, a very unpleasant situation much more tolerable. So that really falls into preparedness and, uh, and proper safety gear when you go out there. Oh, good ideas. Suzanne, I want to get into processing our dispatched game. But before we do that, let's take a moment out for a word from my affiliate. 
Folks, the gardening and sustainable living bundle from Ultimate Bundles is more than just gardening. In addition to bundles about growing delicious vegetables, even if you're short on space, there are bundles showing you how to preserve your own food, canning, dehydrating, fermenting, plan your garden so you don't waste a square inch of space, homesteading so you can earn some cash on the side, and raising animals like goats and rabbits and chickens. Don't miss out. Learn more and order your bundle at culinarylibertarian.com slash garden bundle. The bundle is a collection of 21 ebooks, 7 e-courses, 5 printables, and planners. That's 33 bundles in all. Inside, you will find planting planners, printables, even resources to help you grow delicious veggies, even if you're short on space improve soil health, get started with worm composting, and more. It's a well-rounded bundle of gardening tips, all for $29.99. If you've ever felt like you could never grow your own food, I want you to click the banner on the show notes page to learn about the Gardening and Sustainable Living Bundle. It includes a bushel full of resources for getting started in gardening with 33 ebooks, e-courses, Printables and planners, you'll discover strategies and systems that will help you live more self-sufficiently. Plus, gardening is so helpful for reducing stress, boosting immunity, and making friends. Unless you have a lot of zucchini, then you can build your zucchini muffin skills. All this gardening and sustainability information in one place is worth the time saved searching for every detail. You already have it. And for just $29.99, it's super affordable. Check it out at culinarylibertarian.com slash gardenbundle to order your bundle today. 2020 is a strange and uncertain time, so I'm glad Ultimate Bundles offers a 30-day happiness guarantee on your gardening and sustainable living bundle. You can try the bundle out for a whole month. Then, if your job situation changes, if you decide you don't need the bundle any longer, simply email their customer happiness team to get your money back. Click culinarylibertarian.com slash garden bundle to start your garden journey today. Now let's get back to the show. All right, so we've bagged our animal. We've left the remains there for the bear because he heard the shot and we scooted out of the way. Now... Processing is a big thing, and the a, a, a goose or a duck or a chicken, they're all the same. I mean, as far as the skeleton structure goes, a deer and an elk is the same, but you've got a problem here. Uh, that's a big thing. So are you doing uh, – what's happening in the field? I guess that depends on the hunter's skill. Are you breaking to subprimals, then taking them to the butcher? Uh, you, uh, you can probably do it yourself, but not everybody can do what we can do. I mean, I can brick an animal, but that's I'm, what I don't have at home is a lot of space because even a deer, you trust that thing out and it's got, you've got six, seven feet of legs. Yeah. So that's, that's not an easy thing to do. So what, how do we manage this processing? Do we take it to a guy who's going to grind it all? I mean, I don't, that doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I know people that uh, they just show up and they do the shooting and the guide will 
dress it out, load it up, take it down to the ranch and I'll help them skin it out and they take it to the processor and the hunters, especially the ones that fly in or drive up from the city, they'll go get it in a day or two from the processor and either uh, ship it home or it'll be shipped home. They can drive home with it or they just pick it up if they're local. So all there are many, many options and I process mine myself. I will dress it out. And oftentimes if I'm out with the other hunters and the outfitters, they don't feel like waiting around for me. So they'll just say, get out of the way. They can do in 10 minutes what might take me 45 minutes to do, but I can still do it. Um, right. So we have the first step is to make sure that the animal is actually dead. And, um, you know, there are ways to do that, ways to approach it. You want to approach it away from, you know, from the back so it doesn't strike out at you. And then once you know, that's, again, where you drain the blood, where you cut the entrails out, do all that that we already covered. Let's say now you are of the persuasion that you want to do it yourself. Because if, if you weren't, everything's been done for you at that point. You took your shot, now everything's done. And you just, here's the address for the processor, tell them exactly what you want to do with it. So... I start, I get mine home, we'll take it down to the lodge, quarter it out, I'll throw it in the back of my truck once that's quartered out, and I'll just take a piece of it at a time and start working at it uh, in my kitchen. And I have a big DeWalt saw, and I just saw away at that thing and process it and process it here. So the first thing I do is cut out the loins and the back straps and the loins we typically eat within a day or two. I've, I've literally seasoned them while they were still warm and thrown them on the grill. Back straps, we'll slice them up and that's typically, you know, like what something we'll share right away. And when it comes to venison, other than the loins and the back strap, I grind everything. My elk, I will make steaks from the hind quarters um, in addition to the back straps and loins. And then I like to grind the rest of it. Something else I like to do is um, after I grind it, particularly venison, I'll do some with the harder cuts to butcher up that don't really work well for steak if I don't want to make stew, is I will grind it and then treat it just like hamburger that I'm going to cook in any recipe. So I will seal, I will season it with salt and pepper and add some chopped onions and, and fry it up, saute it, and then put it in pressure cans. Uh, I'll put it in jars that are quart sizes with uh, some water and process that. And what you need to do for that is process it 90 minutes at 15 pounds in my altitude. And then I'll have something ready to go, which is really convenient. So if you wanna make a taco salad, you just add taco seasoning. If you wanna make a spaghetti sauce or lasagna, then you just add Italian seasoning. So I keep it really generic and then I can build whatever I want with it. I just, and I, I just, I'll actually send you the picture if you want to share it for the podcast. I just made um, elk enchiladas for my family the other day. And that was just by opening a jar and putting in some, oh, let's see, I added some chili, some cheese and enchilada sauce and, and onions and olives on top. And there was my meal. It literally took 10 minutes to throw together because I'd done all the work ahead of time. I also have a vacuum sealer and I, I have other bags. So whatever I do freeze, I vacuum seal on my own. And then I have a freezer just ded dedicated to game. Cool. I did see that picture of the enchiladas. They were good. <laughs> Probably the, the hunter would need to know in advance what butcher shop near him is available and what they're willing to do. Because I would imagine that maybe they're just not prepared to 
separate tender meat from tough meat, which would either be turned into grind or for stew, which, you know, at a restaurant, that's what we did. We went through the whole thing and we, this is all, this is all saute worthy. That's premium plate price versus the grind of the stew worthy, which is less so, but we had, we knew what we were doing. We had the space and the containers and all that for it. But, you know, hunting time, maybe the butcher shop is really busy. Maybe they want to do that. Know ahead of time. Have a relationship with your local processor. Tell them, hey, I'm going out on a hunt, and this is what I'm going to go and hopefully bring back to you. Uh, do you have the space for it, and what's your turnaround time? And they can either take you or they don't. But I don't see many of them wanting to turn down any business. And there's a local one down in my town here in Colville, and I've actually gone in there and watched him. And they will process, again, uh, stew quality or they will grind it up for you they will make sausage a lot of the, one of the benefits for using a processor is if you want to have sausage either uh, to be frozen like in a hot dog or dry cured more like a salami type summer sausage they can do that for you i've done i haven't done that with the casings i have made breakfast sausage patties out of elk using sage and maple syrup and that turned out amazing so, uh, and that also, if you want them to, they will add some pork fat in there to give it a little bit more of a, a fat content. And that gives it a little bit more flavor. Me personally, I don't do it because I go to such an extreme measure to get animals that have been raised organically, have no, you know, antibiotics in them ever. And then to just add something that has that component to it. It's, to me personally, it defeats the purpose, but um, also, you want to be careful about using elk fat. I used elk fat in the sausage I made. And unless you eat it right off a cast iron skillet when it's hot, it gets a consistency in your mouth like Elmer's glue. So that kind Ooh. of fat, yeah. The, and then venison fat can go rancid. I don't ever use that in what I cook. So just just know that the fat on these animals is going to be very different than what you would get, like, say, on a nice ribeye steak. This kind of game has far less fat content and far more protein than you'll get from traditional beef cows. So no, I would use I would use pork fat back just because it's clean and it's got no flavor and it makes it just adds that fat that the sausage wants to have. And again, there are no rules. It's you know, you can do whatever works whatever works for you. And I've come a long way in doing this when I first got my uh, my first uh, carcass that a friend of mine uh, was a, it was this was a trophy hunter all this guy wanted was the antlers and his brother said hey i got a deer carcass if you want it and i said sure so i took it home i had no idea i've been just reading books and looking on youtube on how to process it but when it gets right in front of you you actually have to figure out how to do it and i've gotten to the point now where even if i'm not using a knife i can just run my fingers through the different layers of muscle and make the different roasts or steaks or whatever i like to do just a word about roasts. I've tried it several times, even in a slow cooker. The meat is so lean. I, I personally don't care for it. I will grill it super hot and fast and serve it rare because, again, it is very lean meat. It will dry out quickly. Or I'll have the cast iron skillet with butter and garlic when I'm processing it and just snack on that as I go. Really important, too, talking about equipment, knives. Make sure your knives, if it's the one out in the field, again, you should always carry a knife on you. Make sure that it is razor sharp. I have an everyday carry knife that a friend of mine made for me. I also have a set of outdoor edge cutting knives for when we are um, doing the dressing and the processing as well. 
and then I have another, yeah, and I have another set of knives again for when I do the processing and butchering in, inside my house and my big old DeWalt saw. <laughs> Does anybody still do something with pelts? I, I worked years ago, uh, a certified master chef. <laughs> this was interesting. He <laughs> would bring, now you talked about hunting boar with bow and arrow. This guy hunted grizzlies with a bow and arrow. He was he was a fierce, fierce guy. But he would bring deer into the restaurant, string them up on the pot and pan racks, and then skin it right there. And he would salt the pelt, and he had a guy he'd take it to, and he would make it. He made he made a coat for a sous chef. Mm-hmm. Is anybody still using the pelts? Is that does do tanneries still exist? Absolutely. In fact, I um I have a huge community of friends that are primitive survivalists it's also they're also called bushcrafters and many of these people are very proficient in tanning hides in fact a friend of mine one time ran over a badger and gave it to me and i gave it to a friend of mine who tanned it for me and i'm gonna have a hat (laughs) so (laughs) yeah but these people they i mean buffalo hides elk everything you name it and there's something called brain tanning that you can do too where you actually use the brain of the animal and work it into the other side, underside of the hide once you flesh it out and um, and then soften it and you get a really soft hide. But I mean, I know countless people that practice tanning and they make outfits and shoes and all sorts of things, purses, uh, you name it. I, I have elk uh, ivories that I'm going to make a necklace with and they use every part of the animal and every part of the animal as well. When I make, when I process my meat, I also make elk stock. So I, I see parts of the animal that are thrown away that I, I cut off, like the hawks, parts of the, the spine and the sinewy tissue, connective tissue, and that meat scraps all goes into a 20-quart stock pot uh, with some herbs, some seasonings, and I will simmer that at least overnight, sometimes for two or three days, and then I'll pressure can that as well, and it's an amazing base for soups and stocks, and I see so many people but just take the meat and just leave all the bones and throw them in a dumpster. And it, it just kills me because I think, man, you could make some of the best stock with that. Because, again, you have the collagen from the connective tissue, glucosamine, chondroitin. All of this is good for keeping your joints in good shape. A lot of protein, no sodium unless you want to add some salt. So it's a, a great base for soups, uh, stews, chili, you name it. And even if you just want to sip on it, it's funny, my younger son, whenever he gets some sort of a stomach bug or hasn't felt well, that's always the first thing he wants to eat is elk stock. Yeah, the the wasting of bones is, is it makes me cringe just thinking about it because <laughs> I'm just, I, I want the stock, I want to make something. Yeah, and well, not only that, but you can make other things with them. You can make knife handles with them. I have friends that there's a little bone in the ankle of these animals that they use for um, a, a part of making a friction fire. So, you know, where if you're going to use a, a hand drill, for instance, they put this in your hand and you have the, the, uh, the stick that you use to rub against the wood on there and you rub that and that keeps, that keeps uh, something that you, for your hand to hold that, th- that stick on the hand drill. So, you know, there are all sorts of things. I have a friend that makes purses with the bottom part of the feet on there. She skins those and uses that and makes purses out of them. So I would encourage people to use as much of these 
as you can. These animals gave their lives. You know, I shot a buck deer in 2017. I thought it was a beautiful deer. It was only a three by three, but guess what? He's on my wall. I didn't shoot him because I wanted him on my wall. I wanted the meat and he was a perfect candidate for that. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to remember this day. It was a really great deer. I had great friends with me. And uh, yeah, I'm looking at him right now. <laughs> so I, and I and also just to talk for a moment about the whole trophy hunting myth. You have a lot of people that say, well, I'm fine with hunting for meat, but I don't like trophy hunters. Legal hunting is legal hunting. What's unethical is when somebody just will cut off the head and leave the rest of the animal there. That's a felony. If you're caught doing that, you will lose your hunting rights. I don't care if you want to call it hunting rights or hunting privileges. The state will consider that a privilege and it will take it away from you, often for quite some time. So the myth about trophy hunters really is just a way for somebody saying, I don't like hunting and this is my way of saying I'm going to judge what you do. So just because somebody might have an animal on the wall does not mean that they don't respect the process, the animal, and make the utmost use of it just because they, you know, again, go to a taxidermist. Um, so you, you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, not skills and shelter building skills, lean-tos, get out of tarps, or um, maybe if you find lots of uh, limbs, or I mean, there's lots of ways to do this. Do you know of any books that you can recommend for people to learn? I mean, not tying is tough. I was a Boy Scout, I got to tell you. Um, I, I couldn't do a bowling if I had to. So um, these are good things to remember. What do you recommend for people to up their skills for not tying and surviving with what is in the woods? Gosh, I'm a huge fan of YouTube. There are some great survivalists out there um, that have some pages. You know, Cody Lundin's really good. And uh, if you have the time, try to find a primitive survival gathering in your area. Utah has a huge contingency of people that do this. In fact, we just had a gathering in Tabiona, Utah. And, you know, when you go to these, you learn about, again, the rigging, learning up, setting up a ridgeline for building shelters. We talked about that, how to make pottery, how to make knives, how to tan hides, how to process meat, Uh, just all sorts of survival skills, tracking, and pretty much anything that you need to learn. If you can have, if you can take the time and go to one of these. There's one coming up in September um, in Rexburg, Idaho called Rabbit Stick. It's probably the largest one. There's Sky Earth in Dallas. There's um, Winter Count and that's in February in the Phoenix, Tucson, somewhere down there in that area. There's another one in in October called Between the Rivers and that is up uh, in Eastern Washington. I would highly recommend if anybody can do it to get out there and, and spend some time. There's no shame in going with an RV. Yes, they call it a primitive survival gathering, but it's really a misnomer. They're pretty much outdoor skills uh, classes. So if you are at all seriously interested in this topic, I, I would recommend going to those. And then you just go around on YouTube, find some places, even on Facebook pages, and, and you can sort out who's reputable and and who isn't and if anybody's interested they can they can reach out to me and i can certainly point them in the right direction awesome uh and speaking of that why don't you remind everybody how they can contact you if they have information or questions they want to ask how can they reach you sure i have a website it's suzanne c sherman s-u-z-a-n-n-e c 
for Christina, but just the letter C, Sherman, S-H-E-R-M-A-N, um, dot com. And you can reach me there, send me an email. You can read my blogs. Many of them have to do with preparedness and the topics we discuss about canning and food preservation, that sort of thing, as well as published articles. And again, from that platform, you can reach me. I also have a podcast on preparedness, hunting, etc., called The Red Hot Chili Prepper. And uh, chili is spelled C-H-I-L-L-Y. It's kind of a, a play on words because I, lived in, I live in the coldest town in Utah. So um, if they want to follow me there, we do podcasts and, and preparedness discussions on a regular basis. Cool. All right. Well, since this is your wheelhouse, is there something you want to make sure you tell me that I didn't ask you? No, I think I just want people to have an appreciation for what a hard thing it is to go out there and go out and hunt. Even if you have an outfitter, there can be some absolutely horrific weather uh, conditions that you're going out there. And, and don't be so quick to judge. You might think that hunting is cruel. It's unnecessary. But I submit to you as somebody that likes to live a life of preparedness, um, you know, we've seen a bit of a meat shortage, what, what was going on with the COVID and the government response to it. And it was really hard to get chickens. We saw a run on pork. You couldn't get a lot of meat here. Think about what's going to happen to you and your family if you could no longer purchase meat in the store. How are you going to acquire it? Are you going to go out there and hunt it, to your, hunt it yourself? I also wrote an article for Survival Dispatch where you can raise livestock, uh, small livestock in, in your own apartment. So, you know, you might think that it's unnecessary today, but at some point you might need to be more responsible for acquiring your own source of protein, particularly animal protein. So, you know, the vast majority of hunters uh, do their very best to be ethical, to not make the animals suffer, and very much look down on people that don't treat the animals with respect, the dignity they deserve, and make the utmost use of the animal and not just the meat. Very good. Well, thank you for your time today. It's going to say afternoon, but it may not be. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Does it matter anymore? Nobody goes to work anymore anyway these days. And it doesn't make any difference at all. Sun's up, must be daytime. Okay. Yeah. And also, you know, I have a note on here um, about preparing for processing. If you decide that you want to do this at home and do the processing, line up everything before your trip. Have everything set before you go. If you want to try and can your meat, make sure you have the stock pot. Make sure you have the pressure canner. Make sure you have the jars, the lids everything you're going to need because when you've been busy and you need to get this done, you don't want to have to try and scramble and get everything, particularly right now since supplies are running low. Amazon, if you're just buying your stuff online or whatever else you're using, we know it's taking longer. Get your stuff laid out ahead of time. Sight your, rifle, your rifles in early, your arrows, your bows, arrows, whatever you're using, make sure everything's ready to go ahead of time. Also, make sure you have all the ammo necessary. I had taken my son on an elk hunt. I went on another one a few days later. Guess what he had in his pocket? My box of rounds. I literally had two rounds and I had to shoot an elk at 400. And uh, I hit her once and then she went up to almost 500 yards and I had one round left. Fortunately, I made good use of it and, and dropped her and she didn't suffer. So make sure everything's ready before you get going. Don't try and get everything together the day of the hunt, the morning of the hunt, or the night before. Be prepared. 
Well, in, in the kitchen, we called that mise en place, which I made a joke of it. Mise en place is French for get your together. Yes. <laughs> Great advice. All right. Well, have a fabulous afternoon there in the 6500, and I will speak to you soon. Thank you, my friend. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. All right, folks. That's going to do it. What we were talking about a little bit, Suzanne and I, was fundamentally life in the old ways. Uh, there was a time when there was a specialized knowledge of living in the area where you lived, and we've collectively lost a lot of that. So Suzanne's knowledge of Utah wouldn't apply necessarily to Texas, but somebody has put together a book called The Lost Ways, which is available either in digital or physical, and I'm going to put an affiliate link to that on the show notes page. Uh, this is the kind of thinking that is necessary for a time out in the woods or if some other terrible thing like a pandemic happens, what do you do? So the, the Lost Ways book purchase comes with three bonuses. Uh, those books are What Every Survivalist Should Grow in His Backyard, How to Outlive an EMP, The Early Pioneer Ways, and A Step-by-Step -Step Guide to Building Your Own Can Rotation System. Those are three free bonuses when you purchase through the affiliate link for the Lost Ways book. The banner will be on the show notes page, colonialibertarian.com slash 94, and I'll post links to Suzanne's previous episodes as well. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Leave a rating and review, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian Podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com. Fun, fun, fun. How are you doing? How's your summer going? Uh, I just read on Facebook that Kate has made face masks mandatory July 1st. Mm. And I'm really pissed about it. Well, they're doing that in my county as well. So I had to work out today with a mask and... I go anaerobic in these classes. I work out so hard. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go. So the first thing I did was I pulled the lining out of the mask. It was one of those little surgical masks. And then I tore two holes in it. I tore a hole over my nose and I tore a hole over my mouth and I just faced the wall so nobody could see. And when we went outside to get fresh air, one woman goes, oh, your mask has a hole in it. And I said, yeah, it's just as effective as those N95 masks now. <laughs> Well, I have cheesecloth. I was going to make one out of cheesecloth. Oh, that's brilliant. I think I have cheesecloth. I'm and anybody who says it doesn't work, are you a virologist? Are you an epidemiologist? Yeah, yeah. I, I have uh, two coming. One, Or I have uh, of, uh, fishnet stockings I'm going to make one out of, and then another one's a Confederate flag. <laughs> yeah, I, I've... So, I'm, I just, I... It's It's... I want to take a firm stand, but I got to buy groceries too. I know. I got kids. I got kids to feed, and this is. It's. It's not even a point of principle. I don't know. I don't think yeah, that it's a point of principle. A I think it's a point of prag of practicality. I mean, you've got. 
if it's just me, fine, I'll give you a big middle finger. But yeah, there's, and I don't care. I mean, the setting example. Oh, shut up, go away. Well, but I've got I've got to go into stores that that offer products that I need for my family. Totally get it. And they made it mandatory in my county, um, but I didn't wear one in Walmart. I didn't wear one in Whole Foods where it's supposedly mandatory. And I wasn't the only one. I would say maybe 15% weren't wearing them. And then we were in the state liquor store and my son had a little one of those little socks around his neck that he pulled up, but it wasn't on him. He goes, you have to have it over your nose and mouth. So he did it. Though we walked out, though. Jesus we had him, We had them both all the way <clears> down. <throat> and there were two guys in the door making sure they were up as you walked in. As we walked out, no masks on, looked at him, smiled, and walked out. <laughs> I want to. I think I want to design one with the uh, Golden Star of David. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It's the same I, thing. Yeah, it, it is exactly the same thing. It is. So anyway, all right, my dear, I won't keep you waiting anymore. <laughs> all right. 